Let me encourage you to find John's gospel, John chapter five. We're gonna uh, dig back into this text as we're just uh, seeking the Lord and uh, for him to just uh, stretch us in our understanding of him and, and who we are and how to live uh, a life that indeed does magnify and glorify him. I wanna start off with a question. It may seem like a, a rather simple question, uh, particularly in, in this context of folks gathered uh, uh, during a COVID uh, time together. Uh, but the question is simply this, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, we know that gospel means good news. And my guess is that if you would ask many Christ followers, particularly here in America, but I think probably always across the world as well, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? They would probably say something along the lines of, well, it is, it is the good news that our, our sins can be forgiven and that we'll go to heaven when we die. And that answer is not wrong. It is, however, I think incomplete. It is true that the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was catalytic, life-changing. It made possible the forgiveness of our sin and a restoration of a relationship with God. And part of that is certainly that we will be with him forever. But a gospel that deals solely with the forgiveness of sin and entry into heaven when we die is incomplete. Let me take you to the words of Jesus. When Jesus came, Mark's gospel records for us. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What I want to make sure that we, we understand is that, this, that this, this invitation, this good news is an invitation of the gospel to take our own little kingdoms, our own little self-rule, our own little kingdoms that we kind of roll over and align them with the kingdom of God so that we can help bring in his kingdom wherever we are. In fact, just think about it. When Jesus told us how to pray, Jesus didn't primarily say, pray, get us from down there, up there. No, he said, pray, Lord, help us to bring up there, down here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of the availability of a completely different way of life. A life that changes us from the inside out, starting right now and continuing for all eternity. Does it include the, the wonderful promise of heaven, the wonderful promise that there is life beyond death and disease, beyond the grave, there is a resurrection coming? Absolutely. But it includes all of our life, all of our life brought into alignment with the kingdom of God. 
that eternal life is not just a, a, a quantity, foreverness, but it is a quality of life, a completely different way of life that changes us from the inside out. And I say all that to bring us back to the text of John chapter 5. We looked at the first few verses last week, and we saw a physical healing that took place. A man who had been invalid for 38 years was miraculously, instantaneously healed by Jesus. And Jesus gave him those words that we looked at, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And we reminded ourselves that the tense of the Greek word is walk and keep on walking. And as we looked at that miracle, we wanted to remind ourselves that it, it wasn't just a physical miracle, as awe-inspiring as that is, but it was also a picture of a spiritual reality, our own helplessness and hopelessness apart from a miraculous intervention by God, but also an invitation to experience the greatest healing of all, a spiritual healing, and to walk in that healing and to keep on walking. That it is not just a, a moment in time and then check with me after your kind of run on earth is done, but it is walk in a brand new life. So Paul would write to the Colossians, therefore, as you received Christ, how did you receive Christ? By grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. We looked at that last week. So walk in him. Walk and keep on walking. We are called to walk in the Spirit. You see, as long as you and I are living in this not yet fully redeemed world, in these not yet fully redeemed bodies, we're going to encounter opposition. Opposition to walking in the new life that has been given to us in God's kingdom. And so when we come to John's gospel chapter 5, it not only starts off with this miraculous healing, but it's also a turning point in John's gospel. Because in chapter 5, we begin to see kind of crystallizing and coming together opposition to Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that as long as we're in this world, we will experience opposition to walking in the newness of the kingdom. And what I want us to spend our time with this morning is, is, is just to look and say, what, what does it look like to live in the wholeness that God has given to us in Jesus Christ? What does it look like to walk and keep on walking in light of our spiritual healing? Turn with me to chapter 5, verse 9. We, we talked about it comes right on the heel of those words, get up, take up your bed, walk, walk and keep on walking. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. We looked at that last week. I did not last week read the last expression, the last phrase in that verse uh, because that's where you begin to see the opposition begin to kick in. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them and said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Now here's the first decision that leads to a lifestyle of wholeness. And these aren't the only decisions that lead to wholeness, the wholeness that we have to move from the brokenness of sin to the wholeness of the life uh, that Jesus Christ has for us. But there are five that grow straight out of the text. And the first is, I have to decide to reject legalism. I have to decide to reject legalism. Here this man, set free by Jesus Christ, walks smack dab in to the face of legalism. And, and you know, I just kind of, you know, you start to try to imagine this scene and it's, it's, so, it's so weird to think about, right? Instead of them rejoicing over this guy's healing, right, they're, they're pulling out the rule book and saying, you're breaking a rule, right? I mean, can you imagine if uh, maybe early this morning you were still trying to sleep a little bit and, and you heard, a, uh, heard the sound of a lawnmower being cranked up and, and, and you, you had a neighbor who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years and all of a sudden you see, see this guy, he's out pushing the lawnmower and I mean, he's hopping and skipping and dancing. And I, mean, he just, I mean, can you imagine your first response to run across the street and say, hey, it's early in the morning on Sunday. What do you think you're doing? No, you'd be rejoicing. What happened to you? How are you able to walk? What's going on? This is awesome, right? That wasn't their response. Legalism, according to Tim Keller, is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. That's religion. I do things to be accepted by God. I keep rules to be accepted by God. Chuck Swindoll kind of expands on that. He says, legalism is the establishment of standards carefully selected by people for the purpose of celebrating human achievement under the guise of pleasing God. Legalism is righteousness as defined by humans who frequently cite God as the source of the standard. In reality, the standards come from culture, tradition, and most frequently, the personal preferences of those who maintain positions of power or influence. And legalism, legalism is so destructive. It keeps us from walking in wholeness. Legalism blinds us to the miraculous work of God. We can't, we can't see, we can't celebrate his grace. We can't celebrate healing because it blinds us to the miraculous work of God and it binds us to the meticulous rules of man. And some of you may have even grown up in a very legalistic environment, you, 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 a kind of this long list of things to do or, or not do. And, and, and sometimes it becomes more about following the rules than following Christ, right? And the legalism ends up producing kind of one or two extremes in us. It either produces pride and self-righteousness, because I'm doing a good job, or at least I'm doing better than I think you're doing, <laughs> or guilt and shame, because I, I, really, I can't always live up. I can't live up to the standard. I can't, I can't keep up. But the real danger of legalism is that it's a false gospel, it's good news that isn't good. 
It tells us that the only way to be right with God is, is through our own efforts. So how do I combat legalism? Because Jesus ran into this all the time. How do we combat it? Truth must emerge. You must always come back to the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Truth must emerge and convictions must be employed. That I, that there are times I'm going to have to, to operate by convictions based firmly on the word of God. Certainly I need to stand on those things that, that God's word is crystal clear about, uh, but I need to give a lot of grace, a lot of wobble room on those things that, that are just my kind of understanding or application of what's kind of the best way for me to operate in my life that, that hopefully is in line with God's word. Conviction must be employed and grace must be embraced. To combat legalism, I have to come back always to grace. I have to come back and realize that on my best day, <laughs> on my best day when I'm checking off all the boxes, when I, when I think I'm, I'm doing it all right, when I kind of in my mind have kept all the rules, that I still need God's grace as much that day as the day when I feel like I, I've stumbled and blown it and, and not, not kept the rules at all. Grace must be embraced that my foundation, my hope, my trust is not in my performance, but in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, don't check out on me here. Some of you are going, mm, I'm not sure about all that. Stick with me as we keep walking through the text here, all right? I have to decide to reject legalism because it's a false gospel. But also, we, I think we see in here a decision to worship the one true God, to worship the one true God. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it's interesting. This guy didn't know a lot, right? He just knows he's been healed. He didn't even know when they asked him at first. He said, I, didn't, I don't even know the guy's name, <laughs> Because he you know, healed and I got up and I started walking and then he was gone. But he knew enough to go to a place of worship. To go to the temple. And when you understand what God has done for you. When you understand that miraculous grace, that spiritual healing that took you from helplessness and hopelessness to the opportunity for wholeness, for life abundant and eternal in Jesus Christ, the response of your life is to worship. Now, it has been suggested, and I think it's probably true, that all of us are worshipers. All of us give our attention, our energy, our focus. We place our hope in something. We, we declare something to be most worthy in our life. It's been said that everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. And if I'm going to be whole, if I'm going to live in the, in the life and in the freedom, if I'm going to walk and keep on walking in wholeness, I am going to worship the one true God. You see, the Sabbath was a gift. It was a gift from God to his people. 
It was the gift that he, he, he set up, a time to commemorate God's creation. So he, he built that rhythm in. One day out of seven, it points back to the Genesis account of the, the days of creation. It's just a reminder, a celebration, commemorate his creation of the world and celebrate his provision to us. And so I build in this rhythm and he, he established for these people just this rhythm to say one day, one day out of seven, just stop working, stop the usual pursuit of the things, and work is good. It was a gift of God, designed by God before the fall, but I just put it this way sometimes, stop working and start worshiping, and not that we shouldn't worship every single day, but there is that sense of it shows up in the rhythm of our calendar. It was a gift from God to his people. It wasn't supposed to be something uh, that they carried around harshly, that they felt like a heavy weight and a burden, but it was a gift, a gift to guide them to freedom and to wholeness, a gift to reorient them on a regular basis to the reality of God and his ex extreme worth. Well, what is worship? <laughs> we could perhaps spend lots of time. Books have been written trying to describe it. William Temple put it this way. For worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Worship frees us. It frees us from the prison of self. It frees us from those things that would destroy life. It touches every facet of our being, our, our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, our will, our emotions, all caught up in this recognition and this adoration of the greatness of our God. And when we are reoriented to that which is actually the greatest thing in the entire universe, then our life can be properly aligned. So I decide by his grace to reject legalism, to worship the one true God, and then decide to stop sinning. Did you notice his words there? See, you are well. You have been healed. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, that's not to suggest that every, every physical ailment is, is necessarily directly connected to a sin. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a sin-scarred, sin-broken world. But what he is saying to this man is what we need to hear. It's what he, what he said to the woman that was called an adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Paul put it this way to the Romans. For sin... You are now in Jesus Christ. You are now a new creation. You have a new identity. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. He would say to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh.
You say, well, Jeff, now is that, this sounds almost different from what you were saying about legalism. Let's put the two together. Tertullian, centuries ago, put it this way. Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification, the way to be right with God, is ever crucified between two opposite errors. And the two thieves, the two errors, can be described as legalism and license. Legalism and license. Legalism that says, I keep these rules to be right with God. License that says, well, I'm saved by grace and so it doesn't matter how I live anymore. Both of these thieves in the end steal. They steal our joy. They steal our power. They steal our peace. They steal life from us. Both thieves move us from God-centered to self-centered. What has Christ called us to? Not legalism, not license, but he's called us to liberty, to a, a freedom, a freedom from the power of sin, the dominion of sin, that which comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that which separates us from God, and separates us from other people. He says, I've come to set you free from that. I've come to give you liberty from that. You no longer have to live under the dominion of sin. You have been set free, set free now to be who I created you to be, to do those things that I created created you to do. Does he give us guidance on, on how to live? Absolutely. So Paul would write about the, the, the law of Christ. James talked about the royal law. Yeah, obviously, they're the moral character of God and his guidelines still stand. And you could certainly argue that if you look at the, the calling of Jesus, go to the Sermon on the Mount and look, compare that to some of the Old Testament uh, rules and regulations he gave to Israel, Jesus kind of had a higher standard, didn't he? I mean, it wasn't just about external, but it was about internal. Because he knew when he gave life, he brought us into a new kingdom, a new rule and reign. And in that kingdom, we have freedom. In that kingdom, we have power. We have liberty to live according to his design for our lives. We have the liberty to be able to move from the brokenness of sin to the wholeness of life in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The abundance of my life is when I align it more and more with his kingdom, with his rule and reign, and he has given me the freedom and the capacity to be able to do that. A fourth thing that he talks about in this passage, I think, is, is decide to openly confess Jesus. Decide to openly confess Jesus. Look at the next verse, verse 15. The man went away. And told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, sometimes commentators really kind of jump on this guy and they say, well, he was trying to deflect. He, was, he, he didn't want the, uh, the kind of the pushback or the persecution. He didn't want to mad at him, so he, he told on Jesus, so to speak. Well, I don't know if that was his motive or not. I think it could also be he finally understood who it is that made him whole and he'd want to tell somebody else about it. And I think that's what happens to us when we become so, 
so in tune with the fact that God's grace has transformed us, that we have been changed from the inside out, that we want somebody else to know. In fact, as Jesus said, it is inherent in our walk with him. Follow me was one of his first invitations. And I will make you fishers of men. That part of walking with me, part of walking and keep on walking with me is to become a fisher of men. And one of those original fishermen, Peter would later write these words. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, living under his kingdom rule and reign, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we could certainly spend a long, long time talking about this, but uh, let me just kind of put a few thoughts for you out there. The first is kind of my favorite definition of, of telling other folks, confessing Christ, witnessing, if you will. It comes from Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as, as Crew Across the World. He put it this way, successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's what it is. So some of us live under such a burden that like, I'm responsible for results, I got to close the sale, all right? Yeah, not my job. I'm a signpost that points people to Jesus. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I am successfully fulfilling his mandate when I take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that only comes when my life is aligned and submitted to him, powered by the Holy Spirit, and I leave the results to God. Put another way, the only way to fail in witnessing is failing to witness. It's just never pointing to Jesus. Because God will not use our silence. I mean, he's called us throughout the history of, of Christianity, throughout the history since Jesus Christ. There have been people who have openly confessed Christ, some of them at the cost of their physical life. But they knew if they were going to walk with him, they were going to be a fisher of men. And here's the thing. So, Jeff, why, why do you talk about this in the context of wholeness? Because if I don't evangelize, I'll fossilize. Because remember, I, I say it almost every week when we talk about making it personal. Truth comes to you, not just for you, but so that it can go through you to other people. Sometimes you can put it this way. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ came to you not to be a dead-end street, but it came to you on its way to somebody else. And if I don't evangelize, if I don't openly confess Christ, I don't move toward wholeness. I move toward being fossilized. Now, a quick sidebar. You begin to see the hostility toward Jesus Christ ramping up. Look at these next two verses, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See these events in the first five chapters now of John's gospel. We have Jesus coming to Jerusalem in chapter two, and he cleanses the temple, the most visible symbol of Judaism, right? And in cleansing the temple, he's just making this, this statement about ownership. He has the authority to do that, and he is seeking to restore true worship. Now, in chapter five, on this visit to Jerusalem, what does he do in this miraculous healing? He claims ownership over Judaism's most treasured institution, the Sabbath. And he says, I own this. And his purpose is to restore grace. And why are they ticked off? Because they understand the implications of what he has done, that he is claiming to exercise ownership. He is claiming to be authority over the temple, over the Sabbath. He is claiming equality with God. And if that's who we think Jesus is, if that is our declaration, if that is what we orient our life around, then why wouldn't we openly confess Christ? One more decision in the context of this narrative and that is decide to join God where he is working. Make a decision to join God where he is working. Verse 19, Jesus' response. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And then verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, of, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You want to move toward wholeness? Don't ask God to bless what you're doing. And that, that's kind of so often our default starting point, right? It starts with me. God, I want you to bless what I'm doing. But living under the kingdom is to say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I begin to look, where is God at work and how can I join him? And so here's, a, here's just a very, very practical and I think simple, but if you practice it, I think you'll find it transformative challenge. And it's just to pray. And take, take this as your prayer for the next 30 days, or if that's too hard to think about, just think about between now and Thanksgiving, okay? And just think about, what if, what if every day, every morning, you and I began to pray, Lord God, what are you up to in the world today? And how do you want me to be a part of it? And it's like legal to pray that several times throughout the day. It is. <laughs> but what if? What if every person who's in this room, on this campus, people who are joining us online, what if every one of us for the next month just started to genuinely pray God, what are you up to in the world today? And how do you want me to be a part of it?
What might that do? What might God show you? What serendipities might God bring into your life? What, what unexpected moments might God invite you into? Now, for some of us, we get a little uneasy because it's like, well, I already have a full week, thank you. <laughs> I already have a schedule that feels overloaded. But if the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, then every single day I want to bring my life in alignment with that kingdom, then why wouldn't I pray, God? And this is what a great statement of faith, too. God, you, it's not like you just kind of created this world and said, good luck with the Democrats and the Republicans, right? He's at work. God, where are you at work in the world today? And how do you want me to be a part of it? I started off the message with a simple question with life-changing ramifications. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've suggested to you today that while Jesus' life, death, and resurrection make it possible for our sins to be forgiven so that we can go to heaven when we die, the gospel that solely deals with the forgiveness of sins is incomplete. Richard Foster put it this way. You see, the goal of the Christian life is not simply to get us into heaven, but to get heaven into us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, in my life, in my family, in my spheres of influence as it is in heaven. That the invitation of the gospel is to take my little kingdom and align it with the kingdom of God so that he can help bring in his kingdom wherever we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that good news of the availability of a completely different way of life, a life that changes us from the inside out, beginning right here, right now, and continuing through all eternity. Get up. Take up your mat. Take up your life and walk and keep on walking. Eternal life is a quality of life, a life of wholeness that begins right now and continues through all eternity. So if I can bottom line it, I'll try to do it in this one statement. Jesus Christ offers us the one and only pathway to wholeness. And that is giving ourselves wholly to him. That he invites us to move from the brokenness of sin to the wholeness of life in him. He invites us to not only experience a life in eternity with him, but an eternal life, a quality of life now to move from, from brokenness and, and struggle to wholeness to abundance he came that you and I might have life and that we might have it more abundantly and that doesn't mean we'll all be materially healthy and wealthy it means that our life will be whole because it is holy and fully aligned with him so here's the, the invitation give yourself 
wholly to him. For the first time, or at a new depth, a new level, because it's a decision I make every single day that I am going to align my life with you in your kingdom. I am going to give myself wholly to you. Let's pray to him together. Oh, Father, Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of that we can be made whole, that you can take us even in helplessness and hopelessness and bring healing and bring restoration and empower us to walk, not in brokenness, but in wholeness and life, abundant and eternal. And that, Father, you, you take our lives and you align them with what you're doing in the world and you give to us peace and joy and power and purpose. And, Father, nobody may ever really know our name, but you know us by name. You call us to yourself. You transform us from the inside out. And Father, today, help us to walk in the wholeness that only comes as we give ourselves wholly to you. And we do so by the empowering grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.